that from here we're going to uh, our home base for about a week and uh, see Brother Billy Green and kind of catch up on our our mail. It's been a long time since I've had any mail. I tell them how many duns I'll have. <laughs> I don't miss those bills, you know, but they have to be paid and they'll all be there waiting on us. And then from there we're going to Mount Vernon, Illinois, and we'll spend a month at least there with a young man who is desperately in the need of help. My wife already said that Jesus is alive. And uh, another thing we need to know is the devil is too. <laughs> you remember when I made my brag last night about how God through his paraclete enabled a young man to find out the problems on my electrical system? Well, I turned the corner out here uh, to get on the highway and it was dead again. <laughs> so I need somebody that understands what God's talking about to help me with my uh, flashers and my signal lights. I thought, well, devil, that's your job. You just go ahead and do it. <laughs> We're still going to believe God anyway. Hallelujah. Every, everything going to be all right, as the old black brother used to say. Everything going to be fine. Everything going to be good. Praise the Lord. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word tonight? Hallelujah. I'm going to be dealing with a reading from the ninth chapter of Second Corinthians, the sixth verse. Now, uh, sometimes when I start reading this, why people kind of cringe a little bit because it deals for the most part with giving. But you just stay with me. I'm sure that you are generous in, in your giving and I'm not about to do a pastor's job and tell you how to give and how much to give. But this is necessary in order to get to the message tonight. Beginning at the sixth verse, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth said, But this I say, He that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth the cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sowing, and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and to all men and by their prayer for you which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Let's pray. Father, tonight... Praise God. Again, at the close of these few nights' service, we want to just worship you and thank you, Father, for the sweet spirit of communion and fellowship. We thank you, Father, for your people, for the love that abounds, and for the life, Father, that's lived. Now, Masters, we come to this portion of this service. We realize as we fill this place behind the pulpit that 
we really are not worthy, only made worthy by your grace and your glory. So we ask, Father, favor from you. We ask that you would anoint this vessel, that I might be able to speak your word with clarity, speak it, Father, without fear, without favor, and speak it, Father, and let it be anointed. Pray, Father, that you would anoint not only us, but the ears of those who hear. And we'll be grateful to you and give you honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing, and you may be seated. Some time ago, I was reading this, and I was preparing a message on giving to the church where I was pastoring. And I got to the end of this chapter, the 15th verse. And I got sidetracked from that message because I feel like that Paul got sidetracked too a little bit with what he was talking about. I began to study that 15th verse where he seems to leave off what he had said concerning giving and what it would do. And he seemed to lose all of this. And I feel like that he understood or looked up and maybe got a revelation or understood more fully about giving and his willingness to give when he began to think concerning what God gave to us. And all of man's gifts, as far as the Apostle Paul was concerned, seemed to pale in comparison to God's gift to this world. Our greatest downward thrust in this day and hour and you find people losing out with God simply because they are not thankful enough. I think the Apostle Paul recognized that and in almost every one of his writings or books you'll find him at least in one place and some places, sometimes many places, stopping long enough to give thanks to God for who he was, for what he had done for him. For he, where he was taking him, and many times in the most adverse circumstances, you find the Apostle Paul giving thanks to God. Right. He meant that much to him. He understood him that well. And I can remember him writing to the Romans when he said, I think it's the first chapter, maybe somewhere around the 20th or 21st verse, where he said, but when they knew God, they glorified him not as God and neither were they thankful and then I think we find in in Timothy he talking to Timothy and writing to him telling them that peerless times would come and men would be lovers of their own selves unthankful and unholy and time after time he was some way getting us to realize the importance of giving thanks to God Sometimes in areas where at the time we would not feel as if we could give thanks to God. But yet taking from Paul's life and realizing that. And I looked at the 15th verse as he seemed to lose himself in the magnificence of God. And what God had done for humanity and especially what God had done for him. And he seemed to stand in, in a heavenly presence as he viewed all those things that God had done. And maybe, I don't know for sure, but maybe for the first time he realized the magnitude of what God had done. And he seemed to depart from ordering and talking about somebody else giving. And he just bathed in the sunlight of what God had done. And he broke off and 
Of course, the chapter, they have an ending here, but he says, Now thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. I stood there with the Apostle Paul a little bit, and then I got to wondering, of course, the you know this, the Greek words uh, express a lot more in one word than the English word can. I got to looking at the Greek word unspeakable, and the final analysis of it all is it simply says, That which cannot be fully explored, are discovered in its fullest. And that gift was Jesus Christ. John says it, I think, for God so loved the world, old Sunday school scripture, that he gave his only begotten son. Sometimes we feel like we understand the magnitude of that gift, but in order to understand that, and God began to deal with me as I sat with the Apostle Paul and, and, and tried to feel as he was feeling, tried to understand the things that he was understanding at that hour. I think maybe something happened there that might have changed some course of his life. But in order to understand the magnitude of that gift, we have to consider God's just demands to redeem Adam's race from the curse of sin. Actually, man was in a sinful state after the fall of Adam, born in sin and shapen in iniquity, and God demanded something because he was holy. He demanded something to deliver Adam's race, and you and I are part of that, from the curse of sin. He demanded three things. He demanded a sinless life. He demanded an atoning death, and God demanded a victorious resurrection. I think the Apostle Paul caught a glimpse of what God's unspeakable gift was and actually what he endured in those days of flesh to present to us the glorious gospel of salvation and redemption through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. To make us understand that it was not a snap of a finger that caused this, but he endured. He endured life-threatening situations finally come down to death. But let's consider some of those things uh, this evening. A sinless life. Let's, if we can at all, and sometimes it's hard for us to understand because we know the end of the book. We've read it. But let's somehow, if we can, get a word picture and consider that we don't know the end of the book. That we don't know that Jesus Christ has come, suffered, bled, and died. And that's some way uh, picture us tonight standing before the judgment bar of God, all of Adam's race, standing there before God, and judgment is here. And the question, where would we be without God's unspeakable gift? Where would we be tonight without the Savior of the world? Where would we be tonight if he did not have, would not have lived a sinless life? Where would we be if he had not accomplished for us a victorious resurrection or died an atoning death? And imagine yourself standing there. And I somehow felt Paul was standing there and I stood there with him imagining what it would be to face those eyes of God as by far they burn through you and he looks and knows, and we stand there knowing that we are doomed for hell. There is no, nothing but that judgment for us. And God says, if there is one among you that is sinless, blood that has no taint of sin, lips that has no guile, and one that is without blemish. Right. You see, not only 
in Exodus 12, did it take the blood of the lamb on the two side posts and the upper posts of the door of the house to keep death from entering in? Not just any type of blood would do, but the lamb had to be without blemish, without any spot whatsoever. And you stand there and God is asking a question, is there one among you living in human flesh who has lived without sin? And you and I know that there is no one. You and I are aware that all have sinned as far as we know and failed as far as the grace of God is concerned. And we have no answer. Because we're standing there realizing there isn't anyone whatsoever. But then out of man's dark moments steps somebody that we need to recognize tonight. Steps the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Out of the darkness of man's greatest darkness steps somebody and says, I qualify for that office. I have lived 33 years and a half, and there has been no taint of sin. The same blood that God gave me in my veins is still untainted. You see, Peter simply says that we are saved by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Hallelujah. No wonder John said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin in the world. This man was worthy. He had lived a sinless life. And he steps out from all humanity and says, I have lived a sinless life. But that is not enough. This same individual had not only to live a sinless life, but he had to be willing to take all the sins of Adam's race upon himself and suffer the penalty which was required by a just God, which was death. Hebrews tells us about a divine decree that God set in order that says without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. But we have heard a man step out and say I have lived a sinless life. But that's not enough. This man had to be willing to die. He was not forced to die. That's the good thing about Christ our Savior. He had a mind of his own. God gave it to that human flesh and he had to die willingly. He had to step out of the shadows and say, I have lived a sinless life, but out again of man's darkest moments steps a man covered with spittle, beaten and bruised, rivulets of blood from the crown of thorns uh, flowing from the vascular area of his scalp, his back lacerated to ribbons with a cat of nine tails, humiliated and abused. Isaiah saw him some 700 years before and he said he was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgression. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Hallelujah. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And this man says, I will. Just like he said, I qualify. I've lived a sinless life. I willingly will die an atoning death. And against 
that divine decree, hallelujah, in the most majestic language heaven and earth has ever heard ringing down to the ages of time, the halls of eternity and the corners of time comes the voice of God's unspeakable gift and says, this is my blood which was shed for the remission of your sins, hallelujah. And he took them upon himself and mounted the cross of sin and shame and there willingly gave his life that I might have life and have it more abundantly. I want to bless his soul tonight. I want to honor him for what he is doing for me. And no wonder Paul stopped long enough to say, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. That's when I think I almost understand him. He becomes like an ocean again. Opens up great things to understand concerning him. You see, there is no height to him. He feels it all. No depth to him. No width to him. When we think we have discovered him, he opens up some new things. Hallelujah. And friend, there's a lot of things in this age that God wants to talk to us about. And more than anything else, I think he wants us to be thankful to stop long enough even in our peerless times to give honor to him and praise to him but he is willing to suffer bleed and die went into the garden of Gethsemane and there you know there's a film out now the last temptation of Christ and uh, although it's a bunch of filth and I know that but I thought they made their one big mistake. The last temptation of Christ was not on the cross of Calvary. His last temptation was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he conquered it all. Hallelujah. I don't believe he had any temptations after he left the Garden of Gethsemane. Because he finally said in it all, not thy will, not my will, but thy will be done. And he walked out of there determined to fulfill the plan of God in his life. But he had to be willing to do it. He was not somebody that was coerced into doing something. He was somebody that out of love for his people willingly laid down his life for them. And so he walked out of there, met and taken by brutal hands, whipped and scourged almost to an inch of his life. They tell me that the Jews would not allow anyone to be whipped over 39, uh, with over 39 stripes, but this was not the Jews doing this. This was a Roman, and they could whip him until and, and uh, they wanted to quit. They could have whipped him to death. They wanted to, but they whipped him almost to death. He was in shock, stayed up all night at the judgment hall from one place to another. This is my Savior we're talking about. This is the one that saw you and me and Knew we needed a savior. Knew we needed redeem. Knew that there had to be some precious blood. Hallelujah. That would satisfy the judgments of God and the judgment of God. And he endured it all, despised the shame. Hallelujah. Hebrews says it. Now sit out on the right hand of God. I'm not preaching Trinity either. Hallelujah. But there, there he was. Finally, they walked him down through the streets of Villa, Via Della Rosa, laid that heavy cross upon his back. In his weakened condition, he fell under the load. One Simon of Cyrene was compelled to carry his cross. And there, in old Golgotha's hill, he submitted himself to the cruel hands of those sadists that were, was torturing him. And he gave these, these wonderful hands that did nothing, only 
heal people, did nothing, only reach out to help. And he gave those feet that just walked to do good for humanity. And he gave them to the hands of those people. And they crucified him. And there he was, hanging there with the sins of all humanity upon him. Oh, let's go to the cross a little bit and spend some time there. It would be good sometimes we talk about the glory of God and talk about the power of God and all of this. But Paul said, oh, that I might know him, not only in the glory of his resurrection, but in the fellowship of his suffering, that I might understand what he underwent, that I might have life and have it more abundantly. What a pleasure it is to gather together tonight, even though few in number, to exalt the King of kings and the Lord of lords and claim the precious blood of Calvary for us that cleansed us and made us whole. What a privilege to accept that unspeakable gift which was Jesus Christ. But he's hanging there on the cross, suffering untold agonies. So awful was that, I think, and the sin that was placed upon him that darkness covered the earth from the sixth to the ninth hour to hide the eyes from humanity from the awfulness. That sin of all humanity and the judgment of all humanity was heaped upon the shoulders of one man. He was there because of me. He was there because of you. Undergoing and taking our judgment and taking our sin. And it was nailed to the cross there. But he's lived an atoning life. And he's hanging on the cross. He's uttered five cries. You know about them. But the cries that would lift our sins has not been uttered yet. Stand there with us just a little while. Let your mind go there. Stand as the Apostle Paul stood because that great utterance to come from him thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Stand there as you see the agony of the body, the agony of the mind, the agony of the soul as he wrestles against all of that and the pain was very real. Although he was entirely God, he was also all man and he felt pain just like you and I for you. He felt despondent, yes he did. He, he felt the pain that was there and people had left him and he'd been deserted and, and turned over by his so-called friends. And you listen to those cries Yes. And you have not heard that cry that would release you yet. The atoning death has not been accomplished. So we stand there. Will he cry it? Or will he call legions of angels to take him down from the cross? You see, the Bible says he had that ability to do that. Right. He could have done that. He still have a will of his own. He still could have called 10,000 angels, it said. Somebody even hurled in his teeth and said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. And they didn't realize the prophetic word that they were speaking. Because had he saved himself, he could have saved no one else. And he knew that. I believe he saw me. I believe he saw you. I believe he said without me they would die and go to hell and die in their sins. Watch him as he raises himself from that sagging, zigzag position that's typical of dying men on the cross and fills his lungs with, with some air and with one last ounce of his strength. He cries, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gives up the ghost. 
Hallelujah. But while that flesh was hanging there on that cross, that great omnipresent spirit that indwelt it walks through the outer court in the temple behind the first veil past the labor of water, the candlestick, the table of shewbread to the second veil and with giant hands rinse it from top to the bottom and brings a new way for mankind to approach God Almighty. We don't need the blood of uh, pigeons and doves and we don't need the high priest. Uh, he has a veil to us, direct entrance into Almighty God because of the unspeakable Speakable gift that God gave to the world. Hallelujah. I'd like to stop long enough to just lift my hand and say with the Apostle Paul tonight, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. The agony of it all. And yet he endured it because he saw me. He did no sin, had no reason for him to suffer other than for his love for humanity. He willingly fulfilled that, and he gave up the ghost God's unspeakable gift. But a sinless life is as important as it was. And even though he died an atoning death, it would have meant nothing had he not accomplished a victorious resurrection. You see, all this was necessary. So we have to go to the tomb now, and we have to remember these one thing, that all his claims of being the Messiah was not based upon the miracles that he did, was not based upon the, the, the lame being healed and the blind being able to see and the lepers cleansed. It was not based upon uh, the miracles of fishes and loaves. And his claim of the Messiah was not even based on the raising of Lazarus. But he based his claim on one thing, that the Messiah, that he had to be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights and raise again. Matthew says it, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Paul tells the Corinthians also, 15, 14, If Christ be not risen, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. So you see, it wasn't all over yet. And the powers of hell was doing all they could, all they could to keep all this from happening. Have you ever turned to Matthew sometime and just mark it and read concerning that to 27th chapter, somewhere around the 60th verse and on through, and it shows a contest between humanity and how sure they are and how sure God is and how sure God's word is. You remember uh, when they came to Pilate and they said, listen, this babbler said that, that destroy this temple, he raised it up in three days. And, and uh, if we don't do something to keep him in that tomb and his disciples come and steal it away, then everything as bad as everything is now, it's going to be worse if we allow that happen. So we need some assurance. And Pilate said, all right, you go and make that tomb as sure as you can. Do your best. And they did roll a huge stone cross there. And then they put that dreaded Roman seal across it, which no one would dare to mess with. And then they placed some soldiers there and said, watch. They was going to keep him in there. But remember, Jesus had said already that on the third day he would rise again. Hallelujah. He based it on that sureness. So as far as the stone is concerned, it meant nothing to God. 
As far as the Roman seal, he feared not a nation or man. And as far as the watch was concerned, it didn't matter at all. But an angel cries, he is not here, he is reason. God's unspeakable gift came out of that tomb, hallelujah, victorious over death, hell, and the grave, and set humanity free. Thank God, for the first time, humanity had felt a freedom they had never felt before. Because Christ had given himself as a ransom for all. Hallelujah. Paul says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Everything I could give him would not be nothing in compared to what he's already given me. And if he did nothing else for us in this veil of tears we live in, he's done enough already that we ought to praise him for that. You see, many times we're not thankful if God doesn't come on the scene right when we think He ought to, we feel like something's wrong with Him or something's wrong with us. And sometimes we lose the thankfulness of the cross of Calvary, of what it took to live, live a sinless life. Do you think it was easy for Him to live among men with their wickedness and everything they was doing and sin on every hand and yet Him not submit to that? It was not easy. But he had a job ahead of him. Just like you and I haven't got a job ahead of us. Right. We've got to tell the world about this one called Jesus. He's not here. Hallelujah. 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 Thank God. That great omnipresent Spirit of God came in and took up that body and walked out of there. Hallelujah. And gave us life. Remember what he said? Because he lives, we live also. Hallelujah. What a declaration. What power there is in God's Word. And He came out of there victorious. But there's something else for us. Hallelujah. Jesus says in this connection with the last night, if I go not away, the Comforter will not come. You see, the Bible explicitly declares that He was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything that God did was did through him at that time as he dwelt in him. Everything was done through Jesus Christ. If man needed a touch, they had to touch Jesus Christ. I've heard people say, oh, I wish I could live in the days of Jesus. Might have been good days. Don't get me wrong, but if we lived in those days and I lived here and I needed a touch from him, I'd have to charter a plane, get over there where he was. Hallelujah. But God said, I want to make it possible where you can touch Him any time you need Him. Hallelujah. I want to make it possible for you. And He devised a plan. We said it last night where He could come and live in the heart of humanity, in the heart of man, and let humanity share His divinity. Oh, glory to God. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift that He gave to me. Something motivates my life and moves me when I think about what God did for me. He did it all for me. You see, if he was not called into the heavens, we would be limited in reaching him. Hallelujah. But I'm glad he's available, aren't you? So he says, I've got a plan in the upper room. He called them out. All the thousands that followed him. Finally come down to 500 individuals. He lifted his arms and blessed them and left them with one last order. Go to Jerusalem and stay there 
until you and be endued with power from on high. Don't try to do another thing. Don't try to tell anybody anything about this. Don't try to witness. First priority is go to Jerusalem. And there you stay there. Didn't tell him any time. Didn't tell him how long it would be. Just said stay there until you are endued with power from on high. They didn't even know what to expect. I don't suppose. But they went because they had faith in the master. Because they had watched him. Because they knew his life. And they knew what he was giving was for them. So 120 out of the 500 that was blessed. Times hadn't changed much today, has it? People still find some reason not to go to the upper room and not to try to find what is necessary in order to be the best witnesses in this world for Jesus Christ. I suppose about a third of those out of the 500. And can you imagine out of the millions of lives that he must have touched, narrows down to 120 people who really saw the solidity in Jesus Christ. You see, that doesn't seem make us seem so few anymore, does it? God's church. The true church sitting in the midst of all of this other. Now God's true church is still God's true church. And if he can set a course of, of hell on fire with 120 people, he can still arise and show this world that God is still alive through his church. That's what he is doing. That's what he will do. You see, it's still the church triumphant. I still say I don't believe that uh, God is coming for a weak, anemic church that's cowering in the corner someplace waiting to be rescued. I think he's coming with a powerful church, thank God, that has made themselves ready to meet him and is standing firm on their conviction, have refused to be shaken in their beliefs. I refuse to allow present new doctrines, so to speak, shake their faith in the one Lord Jesus Christ. That holds fast to his unchanging hand. That allows God still a voice in their life. And so they heard his directive, his last order, go to Jerusalem. A lot of them had excuses, I suppose. I don't guess it's necessary to go now. I don't see any reason to go there. You know, the same, same old thing, same old humanity dealt back then like it does now. You know, God can give an order and somewhere or somehow we feel like that we can just defy that order, humanity does, and do it our way and still achieve the same results, but not so. When God gives a directive, he wants that followed in his fullness. That's why it's important for God to have a church that seeks him, that knows him, that searches for him. And if we miss him, go back and search for him until we find him. Right. And find what his directive is, what he's saying to us. Find out where we missed it. Someplace, somewhere, somehow, it seems like we might have missed. I thought, God, why don't you just let us go back to Calvary and just start all over again. Hallelujah. Find out really where we might have missed that. But there they went, 120 weak, meek, fearful men and women with a commission that he had given them that they knew they were too weak to fulfill. And so they go, not knowing what they were waiting for and wait, pray, 10 days. Why the 10 days? Take they had some things to work out. The Bible tells us that they were finally in one mind and in one accord. 
You see, until we get that way, all the things that God says was ours somehow is withheld from us. Now, I don't know exactly what it took because they were from various uh, different walks of life, different trades. They thought different. They acted different. They walked different. Their, their styles of life was different all times. And yet they all went there with the same commission, stay there until you're endued with power. I'm sure they had some problems that had to be worked out. I'm sure humanity had to die. I'm sure ideas and opinions had to succumb. I'm sure somebody had to lay down their feelings over here. Others had to lay down their feelings there. And they had to count it all as not. Only one thing is important. Get in unity and get your mind on that which God said he was going to send us. Let nothing else interfere. Let nothing else take the primary place. Just one thing, God... What is it? You said we needed it. And you said it was going to be power. And we've got to get in one mind and in one accord. And when that happened, evidently took them 10 days, probably take us longer than that in this day and hour, but evidently took them 10 days until finally one thing dominated their thinking. One thing alone they was concerned about. Not what was happening at home. Not ideas and opinions of somebody else. Not because they thought different than somebody else. But one thing dominated their thinking in their life. And that's get what he said was ours. That we might witness him to a world that's lost and dying and undone. That they might get a hold of what we've got a hold of. And we want that which we've got a hold of to get a hold of us. Thank God. And this is what's needed in the world today. Yes, the Holy Ghost, we've got a hold of it, but it needs to get a hold of us. Hallelujah. Dominate our thinking. And there they were. And finally they got to the place, an old familiar scripture, finally a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting, cloven tongues like as a fire, set on them and they begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit give utterance. And now that great omnipresent Spirit of God does not abide in Jesus Christ in the bodily form, but it abides in His body, which is the church of the living God and should dominate our lives. And we should glorify Him and stand with the Apostle Paul and everything we've ever given Him, our life, our, our automobile, our houses, our children, whatever, pales in the glorious sunlight of the beauty of what He has given us that has ransomed us from sin and from the powers of hell and even from death. So when we pass beyond this veil of tears, we know we have a hope beyond this veil of tears that He's already worked out for us because of His victorious resurrection. Hallelujah. He lived a sinless life for us. He died an atoning death for us. He accomplished the glorious resurrection, ascended into the heavens, and sent His self, His Spirit inside us, and there to dwell, to lead us, and to guide us, and to mature us, and to perfect us, and bring us into the place to where we're what He wants us to be until He comes. In the meantime, we have a responsibility 
And that's telling the world. You see, the comforter has come. The paraclete has found a dwelling place. Hallelujah. Some place he can dwell and help humanity. You don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. You don't have to find somebody in one body. Did you know what has been wrong with the church a lot of times in this world as we focused our eyes upon one man? That's why you see these great men falling. That's why you see them. The whole load should not ever have been on them. They should never have taken the whole responsibility because God does not deal with one man anymore. He deals with a body, a collective group of people, and it's through them that He chooses to do His work and chooses to show Himself and His power in. The days of one-man shows are over, and very well they ought to be. Hallelujah, for it is only then will God's body emerge and be able to do what it's supposed to do. Individuals that have been set down felt like if they had no part in it whatsoever, only the great men and only those who stood behind the pulpit was able to, uh, to do these things, to have possession of the gifts. And I enjoyed the lesson this morning. It pointed out and dropped them out right where it belongs in the body of Christ. They belong to you, distributed to several uh, men, severally as he will, that we might utilize them, that they might perfect us. And not only that, you see, sometimes we become a little careless in that. All those are not given just to help us. They're given that we might help others out here that don't know what we know and can't feel what we feel. You see, sometimes we sit in the very presence of that which is heavenly. And it came. Now he is not limited to just dwelling among us. Hallelujah. He's made it possible to dwell in us. And we said that we have this treasure in earthen vessels and say with the Apostle Paul, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Hallelujah. That which cannot be fully realized, delved into. The more you find out about him, the more there is to know about this Jesus Christ, Hallelujah. Savior of the world, power of the Holy Ghost that came and was willing to die. Hallelujah. You see, the life of all flesh is in the blood. Hallelujah. And Adam's blood was tainted. Sin entered in. But God demanded perfect blood. No taint of sin. I think there's a scripture that said that he looked here and there and could go find no man. Therefore, his own arm brought him salvation, made him a body, dwelled in it, and walked in it. And that body, which was the flesh, which was the Son of God, became the sacrificed Lamb of the world. I've said it often, God did not die, God cannot die. But the flesh, which was the Son, which was the sacrificed Lamb, died. That precious blood presented to God in heaven. And God says, I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. That'll do the job. Now, it's available to be applied by whosoever will. Let him come. There it is. Crimson flow from Calvary. Just come and say, God, I need the blood. 
2,000 years later, it's just as powerful as it was when it flowed freely. Amen.